0: hey everyone uh, this is Danny and I'm here with an all-new episode of the podcast so I did want to give a quick plug Uh, I've been using uh, the site anchor to create the podcast which has been great and um, what's cool is that you can uh, once I posted the podcast It's available in a bunch of different places. So you can get it from Anchor's website, you can get it on Spotify, and you can get it from uh, iTunes and Apple Podcasts, uh, which is really cool for me since I've been working with iTunes for so long and a big part of my job for the last uh, however many years has involved getting content live on Apple. Uh, Being able to type my name in on Apple and having the podcast come up is kind of a fun uh, thrill for me. So if you do like Apple uh, for your podcasts, uh, definitely go to iTunes or Apple podcasts, type in my name, you will find it. You can subscribe to the podcast, tell your friends. I will say the one site that I often use to listen to podcasts is Stitcher. Um, So hopefully I'll one day be on there. I'm not sure how you do that. Have to look into it, but yeah, I'm you know I'm doing this as sort of a fun uh, side venture, um, especially sort of while we're all at home. And so that being said, I do think there is a cool opportunity to try and grow the podcast. I definitely want to keep improving it. Um, right now, it's still very much in the experimental phase, um, but we'll see. We want to keep growing it. Uh, get new people on uh, try new formats so yeah keep listening and uh, spread the good word the all new all awesome podcast so I did I'm uh, kind of a, a more serious note I guess want to just take a minute at the front of the podcast to talk about um, the unfortunate passing of Chadwick Boseman um, I think we we're all just Absolutely shocked by the news uh, this past Friday. And it was one of those crazy uh, things where it was such a long week last week. There was so much uh, crazy stuff going uh, on in the news. And I think it hit right at a, at a terrible time um, where just, I think, you know, here on the West Coast, at least, we were, uh, I was kind of settling in for the weekend was finishing up work and then saw the news. And it just was like this absolute blow and shock to the system where it was just like the worst way to end what had already been, I think, a a really bad week for world events. But man, Chadwick Boseman, uh, such a great actor. And, you know, I think I remember uh, seeing him in the movie, uh, Get On Up. I think that was my first real exposure to him and i remember going into that movie not uh knowing exactly what to expect you know um not quite sure like how that the main actor was going to portray james brown and i came away from it just blown away by how good Bozeman was in the movie and you could tell that this guy was going to be really something special um And then, you know, he's been he's been so good in everything he's done. I mean, unfortunately, his his career was so cut short. I mean, that's some of the the tragedy of this. But, you know, you talk about Black Panther and just such an iconic role. And, you know, Marvel, as we all know, has done such a great job historically of casting, you know, kind of the perfect actors in these big roles, in these iconic roles. But I think one of their crowning achievements is casting Bozeman because Black Panther, you know, it was a character that was sort of maybe a a lesser known hero to the general audience. And it was unclear how they were going to give him this iconic status and how they were going to bring him to life and how they were going to make this character as, you know uh, just as instantly iconic as some of the other marvel universe characters and i feel like from that first moment that we saw uh t'challa and black panther in uh civil war you just knew that this was going to be something big this was the start of something big and man i mean seeing black panther through those mcu movies and then into the black panther movie that character just became so larger than life and so iconic and so meaningful to so many people. And, you know, I remember just thinking as a fan, like it's about time that we finally got a great uh, African-American hero in one of the big superhero universes and not only got one, but got one that was done so well. And, I don't think there's too much debate on this. I mean, everyone has their favorites, but Black Panther is, I think, many would agree, that the crown jewel of the MCU. Um, you know, I have my own personal favorites uh, in, in you know in the universe, but Black Panther, I think, is the best actual movie at the the best actual Marvel movie, top to bottom. It's the one movie I think that sort of just transcends the MCU, and just in and of itself. It is uh, just such a weighty and epic and thought provoking movie. Um, It's no surprise that it was nominated for Oscars for best picture, um, that it won so many awards uh, throughout its life cycle. And then I think it's a movie I'm gonna keep coming back to over the years. I think that some of the MCU movies, you know, you sort of, um, you know, you've seen them once and you're good. This one Black Panther, uh, I just think is truly a classic movie and it's also such an inspirational movie Um, and such a big part of that is Chadwick Boseman in the lead role. Um, He brought such a um, soulfulness and such a regalness and um, such a powerful portrayal of the character. Um, It really is a, a, a unique and once in a lifetime performance in that kind of big blockbuster movie. And I think the fact that Bozeman so embraced that character and so was, was so clearly kind of um, uh, respectful of the way that fans reacted to the character and so appreciative of the fans and did so much charity work and so much sort of visiting with kids and, and all this kind of stuff. I mean, it is one of those things where you almost, it's hard to separate him from the character, and, you know, it sounds silly, He, you know, he played a fictional superhero, but I think, especially for kids, that's so meaningful, and so, um, you know, those actors do take on this larger-than-life role. I don't know if there was an equivalent, uh, you know, for me when I was a kid, but... I think it probably was the way that people in the generation before me thought of Christopher Reeves um, playing Superman, where the actor just so embodied the goodness and the heroism of that character that it's almost hard to separate. And, you know, Bozeman, I think, he was so good in every role he played. 42, Get On Up, Marshall, just recently um, in The Five Bloods, he had a smaller role, but was great in that. Um, and and that, I mean, man, that's one of my favorite movies. I think that's my favorite movie of the year so far. I would actually say, um, and maybe I'll talk more about that in, in another podcast. But it's just so sad about Chadwick Boseman. I think it's just a reminder to you know not take anything for granted, and you know, kind of follow his example of, of living your life. Um, in the moment, and and doing as much as you can with the time that you have, and uh, yeah, it's sad as a movie fan. It's sad just as a as a you know as a person um, that what happened happened. Um, but hopefully, we can all take inspiration from Chadwick Boseman, from his work, from his movies, from his character, and uh, we will definitely miss him. Uh, so. Just wanted to get that in there. Um, You know, again, it's just so sad to think about. But um, it's certainly a legacy that will live on for a long, long time to come. So that's what I have to say about that. And I will be back in just a moment with uh, three things that I'm into this week. So stay tuned. And we're back. And uh, on a lighter note, I did want to talk about uh, a movie that actually—it's crazy because, like I said, it was such a long week last week. There was so much terrible news. Um, And on Friday, I was very relieved that I had uh, a new movie to to watch that I had been looking forward to for a long time. That would be, you know, I knew would be a funny and and fun movie. And that was uh, Bill and Ted Face the Music, the third and long awaited uh, Bill and Ted, new, new Bill and Ted movie. Um, and so I watched it on Friday, and uh, I will say it was there was something about the timing of it that just felt kind of perfect because it, you know, my short kind of review of the movie is, is that, you know, it's certainly not a perfect movie. There's a lot I could kind of nitpick about about the script and and sort of the, the pacing and some of the things the story does or doesn't do. But what I will say is that the movie just felt like the perfect movie for this moment. It just felt like the kind of like uh, positive, upbeat, inspirational, uh, good-natured movie that uh, was like a good antidote to all the terribleness that we've been experiencing recently. Um, and it's funny because, um, so I loved the Bill and Ted movies as a kid. Uh, in particular, I I remember just being a huge fan of bogus journey. I hadn't watched them in a long, long time, but, uh, a couple months ago, I I rewatched them for the first time in many years. And, uh, it was really interesting revisiting those movies. Uh, I still really enjoyed them. And there's definitely kind of this like just shaggy uh, charm to them that I think a lot of movies from that era have from sort of the eighties and early nineties where, you know, there were these movies that uh, are kind of rough around the edges and don't have that same polish that a lot of big blockbuster movies, and even uh, comedies do today. And they sort of were in that weird middle ground that you sort of had in that era where they were really for kids, but also went to some like weird uh, places and some had some like definitely questionable humor in them that maybe wasn't for kids. And I feel like now everything is so, um, you know, hyper-targeted where a lot of movies come out and they're for kids and they are targeted for kids to the point where there's nothing in them for adults. You know, you do obviously have like Pixar movies and things like that, that have thematic depth, but in terms of like tonal uh, consistency, movies now tend to be very tonally consistent. They're very polished. Um, They're very finely tuned products. Versus I think in the eighties and early nineties, you still had a lot of these movies that you watch them now and you're like, how did this get made? Like, how did a studio ever green light this, you know, maybe some of it was, uh, drugs, maybe some of it was just people weren't, um, you know, they weren't as kind of plugged in now as they, as they are now to sort of making these products so smooth around the edges. Um, and they just got away with a lot more, too, I think. Um, it wasn't as hyper-scrutinized. But Bill and Ted, the first two movies, are just that weird mix of, you know, they're they're perfect for kids in, in a way. And I, when I was a, a young kid, like, loved those movies. Um, but then there's also just a lot of, like, uh, gross-out humor. There's a lot of uh, just dumb humor. There's a lot of... Uh, you know, just stuff that's more like for teens or adults. And so it's this interesting hybrid. Um, I will say, you know, one thing about the movies, the the older movies that is kind of jarring watching it now, just as this is kind of a side note, but, you know, most of it is sort of PG, whatever, like ages fairly well uh, for today. But... They, there are some actually very jarring, like homophobic slurs in the first two movies, which, you know, I guess you did get that a lot in movies of that era. But I think what's especially jarring about it is that Bill and Ted, who are supposed to be these like just good natured uh, dudes, um, they use those slurs as insults to other people. And so you watch the older movies, and man, those couple moments do almost just cast this shadow retroactively on the movies where it just makes it um you just have that moment where, where you sit up and you're like man what was that what did i just hear um, but that aside like the two movies they are just kind of evergreen and other than that in terms of how fun they are um how imaginative they are how they just sort of Uh, across different genres and have this mix of like comedy and imagination and they almost remind in some ways they're kind of in that lineage of like Ghostbusters where they're very funny but they also really go all the way with their sort of sci-fi concepts Um, where clearly these were made by people who weren't just using the sci-fi stuff as like a background thing they're actually really going for it and very lovingly, like, using these sci-fi elements in their movie. Um, So anyways, it's funny. I, as a kid, uh, my favorite was by far Bogus Journey. Um, I loved the character of Death. I thought he was the funniest thing ever. Um, Rewatching them, I liked the first one a little bit more than I remembered. And so now I kind of put them about even with each other. Um, but the first one does have just this uh, charm to it that is, is crazy. And it's so it kind of sneaks up on you where you're watching the movie. It's this dumb, goofy comedy. But there's this heart to it that by the end of the movie, you're kind of like, wow, this is I'm like misty eyed from watching freaking Bill and Ted. Um, and when I've watched it now as an adult, I was not expecting that at all. Um, to a lesser extent, that's also in the second one, Bogus Journey, but um, what's interesting is that the third movie, Face the Music, has a very similar uh, thing to it where it, it's like a very shaggy, shaggy movie. It's kind of messily structured. Um, like If I was doing it, what I, what I liked about the movie is that it did introduce these really fun characters of Bill and Ted's grown daughters and I thought the actresses who played them were fantastic. Um, I'm looking up the name now, but in particular, uh, there was one actress who really stood out to me. Um, I'm looking up her name right now. Uh, uh, Bridget Lundy Payne. So I was not familiar with her. I guess she's been on, um, some different shows and and been in some movies but um oh she i think some people really like her from the show atypical which i haven't seen but man she was great in this movie she does a perfect sort of quasi uh keanu reeves impression not impression i don't know but she really feels like she could be his daughter basically so if it were me i would have spent probably more time on the daughters and just explored their characters a little more and sort of made it more of like a true passing of the torch movie to them. Um, The movie as it stands does focus pretty heavily on Bill and Ted um, with the daughters as sort of more supporting characters. Um, But in any case, going back to the point I was making, uh, what's crazy about Face Music is that it's just this same like dumb, goofy, fun, you know, has some laughs, have some, has some like crazy sci-fi stuff. The end of the movie, the last five minutes or so, 10 minutes, it has just all of a sudden, like it, it has this these moments of like pure heart and optimism and positivity that are just, they kind of come out of left field and surprise you. But again, I'm like, I can't believe I'm watching a third Bill and Ted movie in a, in the last couple months, and for the third time, I'm finding myself like oddly emotional at the end of the movie, and I was not expecting that at all. Maybe it was partly like again the moment that we're in, where just so much craziness has been happening in the world, and this simple message of just uniting as one and being positive and unselfish and uh, being part of a collective whole instead of just out for ourselves i mean the combination of that just purity of message and the moment that we're in by the end i was like geez this movie is like getting me you know misty-eyed and so there is a weird power to these villain ted movies um that i think will hit people when they watch it and um again like as a whole, I would say the movie was fun. It was, uh, you know, kind of what you would expect. It probably... There's there's stuff that they could have done to, to uh, polish it up and to make it more of a truly all-around great movie. But those last 10 minutes were phenomenal. So I came away, you know, having really enjoyed it. And uh, again, it was sort of the perfect movie for what we're going through right now. Um, one other thing I will mention, uh, well, first of all, I'll just say the movie has a lot of fun, like, callbacks to the first two movies. So I would definitely recommend watching those first two if you've not seen them or if it's been a long time. Um, you know, one of the highlights is definitely the fact that uh, William Sadler is back as death. He's great, as as always. Um, there's a lot of fun cameos from the first two movies. And then uh, I will shout out Anthony Kerrigan, who is great on the show Barry. If you haven't seen that show, uh, you should definitely watch it. But he plays a character called Noho Hank on Barry, and he's hilarious on that show as Noho Hank. And he almost bit, like steals the whole movie, playing a new character who is this, sort of this evil robot sent to kill bill and ted from the future um who actually turns out to have like some some, you know more more going on than we originally thought and the character ends up being named dennis caleb mccoy which is sort of a running joke kind of a hilarious joke i have to admit that has grown on me the more i thought about it where you know the fact that this crazy robot has this very like mundane and kind of overly long name of Dennis Caleb McCoy is kind of hilarious. And Anthony Kerrigan just makes that character like way more than it would have been in in lesser hands. So that was certainly one of the highlights. And again, the the two daughters um, are really good. Bridget Lundy-Payne in particular as Billy, uh, Mm -hmm. really great. Samara Weaving uh, as Thea is also pretty good. but uh yeah i so i highly recommend recommend the movie i think if you're looking for like if for some reason you have it in your head this is going to be like this mega event blockbuster polished you know thing then you know you might be disappointed but in a weird way it almost lends itself i think to watching it at home because it is kind of just pure comfort food um so it's the kind of movie that's sort of perfect for watching like curled up on your couch with some ice cream or something i could see that if you like made the trip to a theater and saw it in imax and were expecting that kind of movie uh that's not really what it is this is like an an, a movie to watch on your couch so great move to release it on pvod and uh this is one, I think, that if you're a fan of the franchise, you know, shell out the $20, support the franchise. And, uh, of course, it's just great to see Keanu and uh, Alex Winter uh, back in in these roles, too. And so, I, you know, I think this will probably be the final Bill and Ted movie, um, but it's a nice little closer to the franchise, and I think it's a nice kind of tribute to, you know, when those movies came out, I don't think anyone thought that they were going to be what they were and have the influence and lasting impact that they did. So for people like me that grew up with those movies, this is kind of just a fun piece of nostalgia. And just, like I said, it's really comfort food. Um, And the last thing I'll say is just, you know, uh, I sort of made a a weekend of it and did like a whole uh, Keanu Khan marathon over the weekend of Keanu Reeves movies, some of which I had already seen, some I hadn't. Um, but yeah, that was a lot of fun. And this was like a fun way to kick it off. So Bill and Ted face the music. Uh, I do recommend it. It's great quarantine comfort food. And so that's all, uh, I've got on that one and I will be back with my second pick. So the second thing I want to talk about is, you know, I think I mentioned this probably at some other point uh, in a podcast, but I just wanted to mention that uh, I've been playing more of The Last of Us 2. Uh, You know, once I finally finished uh, the Spider-Man game for PS4, I sort of dove back into The Last of Us 2, and I've been playing it uh, a decent amount over the last couple of weeks. You know, when I say decent amount, that probably is different versus some other people, Uh, When I say it, I mean that I've had like once or twice a week, um, played it for a couple hours at a time, uh, which is about as much as I can fit in these days, uh, unfortunately, but um, it is a very addictive game, so I've definitely had one or two times where I've stayed up way later uh, than I intended to on a weeknight playing it, Um, but I did just want to chime in, and I'm really enjoying it so far. Um, It definitely has that kind of Naughty Dog uh, magic to it that The First Last of Us did and that the Uncharted games do. Um, And, you know, just I'm still pretty early in the game, I think. So I still have a long, long way to go. But I I will say that just uh, what I've seen so far, you know, the story and character stuff. Is just really gripping in a way that that Naughty Dog just seems to nail a lot of times, and what they do so well is the feeling that you know there's a sort of a cinematic story uh, and narrative playing out as they're playing the game in a very organic way. So you know, I think back to back in the day, in um, sort of like the PlayStation One uh, days, for example. You know most games you would have the the gameplay and then you would have a cutscene, and you'd get a little more of a story then you'd play more then you'd get more story what i think naughty dog kind of pioneered i mean you know and other people did uh, other studios did as well you know you think about games like uh, bioshock and mass effect um but i think naughty dog to me the quality of their writing is is probably the gold standard for these kinds of single player narrative games. Um, and what they also do is create just action scenes um, and sort of set pieces that are incredibly cinematic um, and they always have really compelling gameplay. Um, you know, I think about other games where uh, sometimes the gameplay can just feel, especially nowadays, just very automated. And like you're just sort of pressing buttons what i admire about naughty dog is that a lot of their games including this one there's a lot of strategy to the gameplay there's a lot of technique um, and it's a good difficulty balance in my opinion where it's very it can be very challenging but it's not ridiculously challenging in the way that like the souls games are you know those kinds of things um so for me it's a really good balance um and they just they just nail these like little character moments um just to give you an example i got to again this is pretty early in the game but i got to a part where you're in sort of uh you know this post-apocalyptic seattle and you're exploring you have to find different things within the downtown seattle area and the game sort of opens up and becomes kind of this mini open world type scenario where you can sort of explore this very large area of Seattle um, at your own pace and go where you want to. A lot of the game is more linear, um, but this part has this sort of open world feel to it. And you're kind of wandering around trying to see where you can find things, where you should go. And one of the buildings that you walk into as you walk inside, it becomes apparent that it is a synagogue. And uh, you know, as someone who is Jewish, it's definitely not something you see very often in a video game. Uh, I can probably count on one hand the amount of Jewish uh, references or, um, you know, Jewish uh, themes in any video game narrative that I've seen. Um, and what's interesting about Last of Us, too, is that this character, Dina, who is sort of one of the main supporting characters, if not kind of the co-main character of the game. Um, She's accompanying uh, Ellie, the main character uh, from the first game, now also the main character in this game, uh, on this part of her journey. And this character Dina is Jewish. And so as you go into the synagogue, you get these little commentaries and dialogue moments between ellie and dina where dina is sort of explaining uh her judaism and and what her family believed and how she grew up with judaism and how they you know practice it even once the apocalypse hit um and it's it's all kind of just these fascinating little bits of of lore for the characters and backstory for the characters and a lot of games try to do this stuff but in a lot of games, I think this kind of uh, world building just feels a little bit tacked on. And it's kind of there just to be there for the sake of having all these, um, you know, bits of lore in the game that that people will kind of accumulate. But in The Last of Us, as with other Naughty Dog uh, games, it feels so, orga- so organic and it's just so well written and voice acted that it's just these great little moments. And, you know, I think of it as a writer where, you know, you're playing The Last of Us 2 and you're seeing this narrative where you've got a main character in Ellie who is, uh, you know, LGBTQ, uh, you know, who's a gay character. You've got this character, Dina, who is Jewish, who's gay, and they're in a relationship together. Um, And there's just a lot of stuff that, Even, you know, mainstream TV shows and movies are not really doing. Uh, And so, again, I kind of talked about this, I think maybe the other week when I talked about uh, High Score, the video game docuseries on Netflix. But I think about games and sometimes there is that reputation from certain that comes from some of the, you know, more backward segments of of the gamer world that that gaming is you know, for very specific demographics. It's for, you know, young males and boys and maybe white males. Um, But I do think there's a lot going on in gaming that is just so impressive to me in terms of diversity and representation. Um, So it's really cool, I think. And that aside, I mean, again, Last of Us 2, just the sense of dread and tension that the game builds up Um, you know, it's sort of carried over from the first game where they create these scenarios where there's these, you know, zombies walking around. Um, You know, you walk into these areas that are filled with just danger and unknown uh, enemies and shadow and, uh, you know, the narrative combined with these sort of horror movie scenarios is just so well done. And I think, again, what's unique about games right now is that they're sort of crossing genres again in a way that a lot of movies and tv shows are not really doing so like you think about the last of us too, and it's sort of a horror premise um a post-apocalyptic premise but it's got a ton of character stuff it's got some quirky humor it's got some lighter moments in it and because of the the nature of the game, you can blend all that together. Um, and it covers so many different themes and covers so many different genres uh, in a way that's so unique, I think, right now to games. Um, you see some TV shows starting to go in that direction, I think, but uh, I do feel like games are pioneering this a little bit. Um, I did see actually on a kind of a tangent Uh, Film Crit Hulk, who I'm a big fan of, he's, uh, if if you're not familiar, he's a really good uh, kind of film and pop culture critic and essayist. Um, He just wrote a really good essay all about Hideo Kojima and Death Stranding and his games and how he sort of um, just puts everything in a blender in his games in a way that's so unique to his uh, particular games. Like, you know, Metal Gear and Death Stranding. Um, But I do think that some of that Kojima mentality is there in a lot of games these days where, again, they're just sort of pushing boundaries in terms of the tone of the narrative and the themes of the narrative and the genres that they cover. Um, And, you know, there's always that inherent sort of dichotomy in games of, You know, as as the narratives get more sophisticated, there's the issue of how do you reconcile that with gameplay that tends to just revolve around, you know, action and killing people and violence. And so you do get weird scenarios where, like, you know, Naughty Dog has been sort of the center of that with their Uncharted games, as an example, where, uh, you know, you play in those games as Nathan Drake, who's sort of this Indiana Jones style hero who's like a little bit of a rogue but he's basically like a good dude and yet the gameplay is that you're just killing people left and right um you know sure they're bad guys but there is that weird um dissonance of like would this guy who's sort of this basically good dude actually kill hundreds if not thousands of people in his adventures and if he did wouldn't that sort of affect his character in a way that isn't necessarily reflected in the game narrative itself? And so you do get those weird kind of storytelling conundrums with games. Um, And I think Last of Us addressed that to an extent where it, even more than the Uncharted games, it specifically tailored the narrative around the gameplay and vice versa um, in a way that just really made sense but I think Last of Us 2 is trying to do the same thing where when you're confronted with killing people or, you know, uh, harming people, it's very much part of the narrative and the story that is being told and sort of they're, they're, they try to add a weight to it. And I don't think I've gotten far enough into the game yet to fully weigh in on that. I know that there's some controversy and a lot of takes on how well Naughty Dog handled that theme of sort of revenge and violence and and how their attempt to sort of give weight to that worked or didn't work. So I'll reserve judgment on that for right now. But I do think there is a, a quality to these Last of Us games that is pushing the boundaries in terms of that kind of... Uh, dovetailing of the narrative with gameplay uh, in a way that not a lot of games have done to date um, and you know just to give you one example um, from the first last of us game i won't spoil anything but i will say that you know the ending sequence of that game has a narrative urgency that i've never seen i think in any other game where it, the narrative builds to such a point that the way you control your character in those final scenes of the first game, you're almost acting on sheer emotion as opposed to you know the part of your brain that's like, I'm playing a video game, I need to win, I need to not uh, lose, I need to do these specific things to win. That part gets almost completely overwhelmed by the emotional part of your brain that's like, I must do this thing because I care about these characters. And that to me, when I was playing that first game several years ago, I just had this epiphany of like, this is one of the most powerful uh, game playing experiences I've ever had um, from like a narrative perspective. And I think already playing the Last of Us 2, there's a lot of moments that seem to uh, have a similar kind of effect to them. And again, you know, I'm still very early in the game. I think I'll have a lot more to say once I actually uh, get to the end, which at the rate I'm going might take me a while. But I did just want to kind of chime in and say that now that I'm several hours into the game, really enjoying it so far. And I do give Naughty Dog a ton of credit because to me they just kind of continually raise the bar for storytelling uh in games which is something that i've always been fascinated with so last of us two you don't need me to tell you but just an incredible game from what i've played so far and i'm very excited to keep playing it hopefully we have a long weekend coming up Uh, i'll have some time to dig in uh even further All right, so the last thing I'm going to talk about today is From the World of Comic Books, and it's a DC comic that I've been really enjoying that just came out with its final issue. It was planned uh, as a miniseries, so it's only, I think, uh, four uh, parts, I believe, Um, but it's uh, by one of my favorite writers of the last 20 years, uh, a writer named Jeff Lemire. And Jeff Lemire... um, Has done so many great comics over the years for DC, for uh, Image. Uh, He wrote uh, one of my favorite comics ever, which is, I think, what put him kind of on the map for me. And that was a comic for Vertigo uh, called uh, Sweet Tooth, which is just this incredible epic um, that they're actually making into a TV show. Uh, I'm not sure when it's coming out, but I can't wait for that show because. The, the comic series is so good and it's sort of a structured, like a TV show, very episodic and serialized. Um, so can't wait for that. But Jeff Lemire, just over the years, he's one of those writers, whenever I see his name on anything, I get excited. I pretty much buy anything he writes. Um, he has a very uh, kind of, I don't know how to describe it exactly. He has a style of writing that's very raw. Um, he touches on a lot of emotions. He says a lot with sometimes few words. And I think a lot of his comics have kind of this, um, they just have a, a mood and atmosphere and a vibe to them uh, that is, is just really unique. Um, and. A lot of his his comics have kind of a darkness to them, um, and almost like a nightmarish quality. Even when he's writing things that are more grounded, there's often like a slightly left of center surreal uh, tone. And he, you know, he's done all kinds of genres. He, he's written in recent years um, one of my favorite comics uh, of recent years called uh, Black Hammer. That's sort of a quirky. Um, kind of deconstruction of superheroes. Uh, He's written uh, a comic called Royal City. That's a more grounded sort of look at a family that's disintegrating, but with a bit of a a supernatural element to it. Um, And what I want to talk about now is a comic that again, just finished up for DC called uh, The The Question Uh, The Death of Vic Sage. And so this is a comic about the classic uh, DC Comics character, The Question. Um, It was written for something called DC Black Label, which kind of replaced Vertigo at DC a few years ago. Um, So basically it's kind of an imprint within DC for stories about DC Comics characters that are a little more R-rated, more adult-oriented. Not necessarily in sort of the main continuity of, of the other DC comics. Um, so it's a good venue for someone like Lemire uh, to do sort of a more mature, uh, more nuanced, more adult take on this character. And The Question is definitely a character that lends himself to that sort of take. Um, you know, some background on The Question. Uh, so The Question was originally a character from a company called Charlton Comics that existed, um, I believe, like kind of their heyday was the 60s, um, 50s, 60s, I believe. Um, and they had all kinds of characters like The Question, uh, Peacemaker, uh, Blue Beetle, um, Captain Adam, the, uh, a bunch more that eventually Charlton got um, bought by DC, I believe in the, in the seventies. And what happened was the characters then uh, became part of the DC universe. And actually many of them became very beloved characters within DC. Uh, One interesting side note is that um, if you know, Watchmen by Alan Moore, the comic book, Watchmen was originally going to be a series about these Charlton characters. Eventually, when it was sort of realized that Alan Moore was going to do this crazy deconstruction, uh, very mature, uh, you know, risky take on the characters, it was decided that he wouldn't actually use those characters. And so, all the characters in Watchmen that he does use are sort of uh, slightly modified versions of uh, the Charlton characters. So um, the question became Rorschach. And so you can see there's a lot of visual and kind of character similarities between the question and Rorschach from Watchmen. Uh, Captain Atom became Dr. Manhattan. Uh, Blue Beetle became Night Owl and so on. And so very interesting tangent there. But the question was originally created uh, by Steve Ditko, who is a legendary comics creator. Uh, Many know him probably best as uh, the co-creator of Spider-Man. And one of the best artists, uh, you know, ever, if you look at those early Spider-Man comics with Stan Lee, there was just incredible artwork from Ditko. But Uh, Ditko was very um, into, like, philosophy. Um, He was very into sort of um, these characters that kind of pushed the boundaries a little bit and had a lot of philosophical, new-agey sort of beliefs. Um, And so eventually he left Marvel, he went to Charlton, and he created the question that was sort of this vehicle for him to explore... Um, these different philosophical ideas of like absolutism and uh, Randian philosophy. And so anyways, the question was kind of this unique character. The visual of the question is very unique where he's sort of this classic pulp hero wearing like, kind of like the spirit, he's wearing like a suit and tie and a hat. Um, But what's unique about him is that his face He wears this mask that makes it look like he has no face Um, it's a very striking visual when it's drawn well um so i always love that character design and it's always a cool sort of pulpy hero um but then i think what really put the question in sort of cult classic status for a lot of people was in the uh 80s and i believe kind of through the early 90s uh there was a a a revival of the question for DC once they own the character that was written by the legendary uh, Denny O'Neill. And uh, of course I talked about in a previous podcast, how, you know, sadly Denny O'Neill recently passed away. Uh, He was a legend in the industry. He wrote a lot of my favorite comics ever. He wrote a lot of the best comics ever. And um, you know, his work on the question was very beloved. It was just like really cool pulpy, um, fun superhero action. It had a lot of like martial arts elements to it. And it introduced a lot of like a very beloved DC characters like Lady Shiva. And uh, it had Richard Dragon and Bronze Tiger. And a lot of these characters who kind of form this sort of uh, martial arts universe within the DC Comics universe and have gone on to become very prominent characters over the years in DC... Um, and so, you know, what Denny O'Neill did really well is he created this sort of like action, adventure, pulp, mystery, uh, sort of universe, his own little kind of universe within DC. And a lot of people really loved the question from that. So in any case, the question has had all different incarnations over the years. Um, Greg Rucka in the last, uh, like two decades has sort of created a second version of the question that is... Uh, spun out from Batman comics. So if you know the Batman world at all, uh, in the comic books, Renee Montoya, uh, who was sort of a, a policewoman for the uh, Gotham City Police Department, at one point in these comics written by Greg Rucka, she becomes mentored by the original question, Vic Sage, and becomes a new version of the question. Um, so the character has lived on in different incarnations, but this new series... By Lamere, um, it sort of goes back to the original Vic Sage version of the question, but what it does is it sort of embraces the character's history of being in a lot of these more kind of left of center, um, sort of philosophical, um, questioning reality type of stories. And like I said, it's called, uh, the deaths of Vic Sage. And it's basically about, you know, Vic Sage is sort of, um, dealing with he historically he lives in this city called hub city um and he's dealing with all this corruption happening in hub city very reminiscent of sort of what's going on now in the real world but he can't quite um go into action as a question because he's also dealing with this sort of crisis this personality crisis trying to figure out who he is who he you know, what his history has been. And as part of that, each issue of the series kind of has this flashback to a different, you know, life of Vic Sage. So there's one issue that takes place in the Old West where there's a version of the question that's sort of a, an Old West, you know, pulp hero. There's one version that's in kind of the fifties um, and, it, and it goes through these different incarnations and Lemire just does a great job with it. Um, he, he makes each issue into kind of a standalone story that ties into the larger whole. He uh, sort of weaves it together very elegantly. And he creates, as he tends to do, this very just surreal, dreamlike uh, atmosphere and mood and vibe to the comic that makes it very mesmerizing and very uh, immersive to read. And also a nice little treat is that the comic is drawn by a legendary artist, uh, Dennis Cowan, who I actually mentioned the other week when I talked about uh, the revival of milestone comics for DC. Um, But Dennis Cowan, he's been around forever. And one of the things that really put him on the map was drawing that run of the question In the 80s by Dennis O'Neill um and so it's cool to see such a legendary artist of the character back doing the character in in a way that really suits the story because Cowan tends to be good at doing these sort of surreal uh, moody type of stories so really good fit and yeah I enjoyed the story a lot um if you like the character you may have seen him on like the animated series he's appeared, um, you might be interested in him through Watchmen. Um, I would definitely check out uh, the book. Also, if you just like Jeff Lemire, if you've read any of his other stuff, definitely check out the book. Um, but yeah, I liked it a lot. I always have loved this character. I always have wished for him to have like a more prominent uh, place in sort of the, the DC Comics world. And uh, I feel like, again, the, the fun of the character is that historically he's been used to kind of tell much more heady stories than your typical superhero story um you know as a character that tends to explore a lot of very philosophical ideas and questions of reality versus fiction and reality versus unreality and anyways there's a lot of fun stuff you can do with a question story so definitely recommend it so That's all I've got for this week. Like I said, keep listening to the podcast, tell your friends, and I will be back uh, with more next week. Thank you.